So um, I'm going to start by giving you a dirty little secret about Christians. Uh, Sometimes Christians believe things to be true uh, simply because they sound true. And because we hear something that sounds true, we just believe that it is true. So sometimes Christians believe things because, you know, it sounds true. Uh, Sometimes Christians believe things to be true uh, because we want it to be true. Uh, Sometimes Christians believe things because we think on some level, whether rational or moral or ethical, that it should be true. Um, now, Christians of all stripes and, and all sizes, we, we all do this to some shape, form, or fashion, but, but hopefully not in a way that's detrimental, but we all do it. Uh, and Christians, unfortunately, you know, we do it all the time. We believe something to be true because it sounds true, and, and we think to ourselves, well, that sounds really good. So, I mean, it must be true. It sounds true. And then we decide that something's true because we want it to be true uh, for whatever number of reasons why we might want it to be true. And then on some level, we think, well, that should be true. And so we believe it's true, even though it's not true at all. And then we develop little statements that catch on and, and become almost, you know, accepted cliches. And, and you've heard some of these before. Um, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's garbage. It's not true. Uh, God, God will give you more than you can handle. You know this. He has. For some of you, your story is he is currently right now giving me more than I can handle. Uh, and I promise you that maybe at some point in your future, um, in, you know, there's going to be a time where you feel just like God has given me more than I can handle. And he'll do that. But he'll never give you more than he can't handle. Uh, but we say these things. And it's like, yeah. That sounds true. Uh, I want that to be true. And I think that should be true. But, but that's a terrible, terrible metric to use to determine what's actually true. Or how about this one? God helps those who help themselves. That sounds American, but not necessarily true. See, the problem is you read the Bible. You don't have a whole lot of problems if you read the Bible, but when you read the Bible, you realize a lot of things that we say are true just possibly can't be true. You know, we'll say things like this, God helps those who help themselves, and then you read the scripture and it's like every person you find God helping, it's like they couldn't help themselves. And then you get to the New Testament, you find out, well, that's kind of the point of the gospel, that God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, but yet we say these things and we like, it sounds true, I want it to be true, should be true, or how about this, the safest place to be is in God's will. Now, if you've said these things before, I'm not going to hold it against you because I've probably said these things too. But I would say we should probably talk to the Apostle Paul about this. He lost a head. Some of you haven't even lost a job for your faith. He lost the only head he had. They took it right off of his shoulders. They crucified Peter. They bludgeoned to death James. Uh, most of the early disciples, many of them gave their lives for their faith. So, you know, I understand what we're saying, but, but to think that if you're in God's will, everything's going to go well. If you're in God's will, everything's going to be easy breezy. If you're in the middle of God's will, the promotion will fall in place. You know, everything's going to go smoothly in the family. It's just, it's just, it's, it's not true. How about this one? When God opens or when God closes a door, he opens a window. Now, one, I don't know why anybody, this is just a dumb statement, but, it, but I understand. But even if, you know, whatever, we get beyond the fact that it's not a good statement at all, it's not true. Sometimes God doesn't open a window or sometimes God doesn't open the door. Sometimes there just really isn't a good option. And, 
And that's what we know to be true about life. Or this is one, you know, maybe we tried it as children. I don't think a lot of us adults have tried it, you know, in our uh, adult years. But, you know, the devil made me do it. I tried that once as a kid with my mom. And you say, well, how'd it go? She beat the devil out of me. And, and, and I, I, I decided she thought halfway through my punishment, she was, she was in spiritual warfare. So she was going after the devil. I said, the devil made me do it. She's getting the devil out of me. Uh, so we say things. It's like, you know, kind of, you know, wish it were true that the devil could make me do something or the enemy could, you know, attack me to such a degree that he, he robs me of some kind of conscious free will. But, but here's the thing. Lies, when they masquerade as truth, that's one thing. But when lies masquerade themselves as good theology or when lies masquerade themselves as spirituality, uh, when, when lies masquerade themselves in religious you know, feelings or religious sentiment, those are really dangerous lies. And those lies do what all lies do. They enslave us. And they enslave us to really harmful ideas um, harmful images, beliefs, uh, feelings, thinking, uh, and, and those things will ultimately, they will undermine our faith. Uh, whenever we believe lies that masquerade as good theology or spirituality, uh, or you know, somehow they're cloaked within religious jargon, uh, anytime we believe those particular lies in particular, it, it's always dangerous because when we believe something to be true that's not true about God, about ourselves, about other people, or about the world, uh, sooner or later, whether we realize it's happening or not, uh, we have chosen to be enslaved to some really harmful lies that's gonna choke out hope, it's gonna choke out joy, it's gonna choke out peace, and it's gonna not, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna help our capacity to love, it's actually gonna limit our capacity to love because it undermines all the significant parts in our lives. And it makes us vulnerable to, to things that we don't wanna live with, like bitterness and resentfulness and, and jealousy and disillusionment and discouragement and, and all the things. Uh, so lies are always harmful, but lies that masquerade as good theology and spirituality are always, in particular, really harmful. Um, one of those lies that I wanna talk about today uh, is, is something that I've heard people say, you know, in testimony time growing up in church. Some of y'all have no idea what testimony time is. Consider yourself blessed. But it was kind of like open mic night at the bar, except it was at church. And, and, and so it was just like karaoke, but get up and say what you wanna say. It's kind of unregulated. There was no time constraints. Nobody held the microphone. I mean, you could just go on forever. Some did. And, and, and every time in my church, that I grew up in, when every time Sister Ethel, I hope you're not watching Ethel, but when Sister Ethel got up, I mean, it was just like, it was like God was punishing us all. And, and it was like some form of Baptist purgatory. But anyway, it's like, uh, sometimes I just gotta get that stuff out. It's like a bit of therapy. But, but I would hear this said by people. And, and then I've read this, you know, or alluded to uh, at different times and places. And it's, and it's this right here. Everyone will disappoint you, but Jesus will never disappoint you. And everybody will say, amen, thank God. I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful that everybody may disappoint you in this life, but Jesus will never disappoint you. It's like everybody's like, wow, amen, yes, praise Jesus. Now, Christians who say this or say something like this, I, I honestly believe they're, they're well-intending and they believe what they're saying to be actually true. But I'm not convinced they've spent any time thinking about what they're saying and what they believe to be actually true. And I get it. Because when it comes to the idea of Jesus never disappointing us, 
When it comes to this sentiment that Jesus will never disappoint you. Your husband will, your wife will, your friends will, your family will, your coworkers will, but Jesus will never disappoint you. Hey, listen, that sounds true. I want that to be true. I think that should be true. I hope it's true. But perhaps more than anything else, on some rational level or some ethical level or some moral level, I think this should be true. I think that this should be true. And in a world that I get to be the architect of, in a world where I get to script what's good theology and bad theology, hey, left to myself and if I get to make all the calls, I think that this should be true. I would want this to be true. It sounds good, it makes us feel good, but here's the uncomfortable, inconvenient truth. The idea that Jesus will never disappoint you just isn't true. Now, I know it feels wrong because it was just as quiet just then as what it was at 9.30. It feels wrong. It sounds wrong. It cuts against our sensibilities. It cuts against our religious upbringing. It cuts against what we want to be true or what we think should be true. But again, the uncomfortable, inconvenient truth is sooner or later, sooner or later, Jesus will disappoint you. Sooner or later, Jesus will disappoint you. Now, again, we don't like the way it sounds and we don't even like the way it feels. You say, well, why do you believe that? Because I've read the gospels. And in the gospels, we are confronted with this harsh, unfortunate, unwanted truth over and over and over again. Matter of fact, within the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know what we find? We find a Jesus who doesn't always behave like we want him to behave. And we don't find a Jesus that not only doesn't behave the way we want him to behave, but we find a Jesus who doesn't behave the way that we think sometimes he should behave. Matter of fact, when you read through the Gospels and, and you, know, you take them at face value, you find a Jesus who is beyond people's control. You, you just, he's not controlled by anybody. He, he refuses to be a puppet to anybody's influence or anybody's agenda. He can't be bribed, he can't be cajoled, he can't be manipulated, he can't be intimidated. And no matter how much we want him to be, no matter how much we want him to be, he's not predictable. It, on one occasion he does this, but on another occasion that feels very similar, he does something altogether different. We want him to be predictable, we want people to be predictable, and when they're not, you know what we are? We're disappointed because we love predictability. You know what we find Jesus in the New Testament and in, in the Gospels being? He's inconsistent oftentimes. He tells one guy, you've got to sell everything you have in order to follow me. And then he looks at a guy on the cross and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. One was going to have to give up everything that he had in order to follow Jesus. But another had nothing at all that Jesus said he had to do in order to be with him in life after this life. So what do we do with that? It's a bit inconsistent. And we like consistency. And when people are inconsistent, you know what we get? We get a bit disappointed. When you read through the Gospels, you find a Jesus who refuses to be on anybody else's schedule, save his own. It's like he is rolling to the beat of his own drum. He doesn't have policies. He doesn't carry around a policy book to figure out, okay, th this is how we're gonna deal with this situation every time we have this situation. It's almost like in the absence of policies, he just deals with people as individuals. And, and because he knows what he knows, he, he does what he does. 
you find a Jesus who seemingly, at least from my perspective, had no real sense of obligation uh, to give special treatment to his friends or family. Uh, people weren't afforded special access or special favors just because they were friends of Jesus or, or related to Jesus. You find a Jesus who does what he does, he says what he says, and here's the thing, he oftentimes offers us no explanation as to why he did or why he said what he said. He doesn't seem intent on giving us a whole lot of clarity about some things you would think that he might wanna give us clarity on. And when someone refuses to give us clarity, when we think it should be clear, it disappoints us. When, when we want an explanation as to why somebody did something or why somebody said something and they refuse to give it to us, it's disappointing. On one page, we find Jesus healing a person, and we celebrate that in Sunday school. I mean, we color pages about it in Sunday school, but we never talk about the guy that he stepped over in order to heal the guy that he did. And it's like, well, what? But see, when we're adults, we realize that Jesus stepped over some people who were sick in order to heal another person who was sick. And then when the guy who got healed walked away with Jesus, the one that he stepped over was left behind. Well, that's a bit problematic for me. That's a bit troublesome when I, when I read through the New Testament, when I read through the Gospels. I don't like that he stepped over one person to heal another. At times he seems to avoid certain people and he'll go out of his way to meet someone else. It's like... Why not be the same? Why not do everybody the same way, treat everybody the same way, give everybody equal access? He doesn't have a way of doing things. He seems to only have his way of doing things. And, and, and much to our dismay, he doesn't ask for suggestions on how to do it better. He doesn't ask for feedback. He doesn't take a vote. He just doesn't seem to care about public opinion or, or popularity. Jesus just does what he does. And that's how the gospels present Jesus to us. And if Jesus just does what he does, that means sooner or later, he's gonna do something that you wished he wouldn't have done. Or he's going to not do something you wish that he would have done. But if you've lived life any time at all and you're honest at all, I think we can all realize and we can all admit, at least in our own hearts, that you know what? There's been times in my life where his way is not necessarily my way. And what he chose to do was not what I would have chosen to do. We find a Jesus who doesn't always act the way that we want him to act. He doesn't often do what we want him to do, how we want him to do it, when we want him to do it. And that causes us to be disappointed. Now, we often feel disappointed when it comes to Jesus, sometimes in the middle of a personal struggle. I mean, we're really struggling with something, we're battling through something, and it's really easy to get disappointed with Jesus when you're in the middle of a real deep personal struggle. Uh, for some of us, uh, it, it's when we went through a health crisis or we were waiting to get the news on a health crisis, and all of a sudden we found ourselves kind of disappointed with Jesus, kind of disappointed with God. Uh, someone else is suffering. And, and we love them and we care about them and we just can't understand why, why they have what they have and why, why they're suffering the way that they're suffering. And, and we kind of hijack their pain uh, to be a reason for us to be disappointed, but that's just part of life and that's what happens. And, and sometimes we get disappointed in Jesus, with Jesus, because of some people in our lives that we really love that are going through a really terrible time. 
Maybe it's an unanswered prayer that gets us disappointed with Jesus or an unexplained tragedy or an unwanted circumstance or what you perceive or I perceive to be undeserved pain. It's like, I feel this way, but I don't deserve to feel this way. Whatever it is that's going on, at some point, at some point, Jesus will disappoint our expectations and he will disappoint our plans, our wishes, our assumptions, at times our reasoning, at times our sense of ethics, there will be a time when Jesus disappoints us. Now, I could get up here and, and just make us all feel better and say, Jesus will never disappoint you. Everybody else will disappoint you, but Jesus never disappoints you. But then commit malpractice by sending you out into a world where you're just gonna experience that that's not true. And I don't wanna risk you deconstructing your faith, and I don't wanna risk deconstructing my faith, and I don't wanna risk getting into such disillusionment or discouragement that I walk away from faith altogether. And so this is the Jesus we find in the New Testament. And it's the idea that whenever our circumstances seemingly contradict God's character, there's tension. When what we believe to be true of God somehow seems to be contradicted by what we're experiencing in our life, there's tension. Whenever we think we care more about the situation than God does, there's tension. Whenever we feel ignored by God or we disagree with God or God seems distant or we're frustrated with God, God feels far away, God's not listening. Whenever we get to that particular situation and that particular point in our life, there's tension, I promise you. Whenever you disagree with God, whenever you're so frustrated with God, you've, you've pushed him away or you feel like he's pushed you away and he seems distant, so distant that you can't even seemingly hear him anymore, so distant you can't even see him anymore, you can't feel him anymore, and you're just frustrated. And you're going through life and it's so contradictory, it just brings about tension in your life. And I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want that to happen to any of us because I know so many people that it has happened to. Whenever my circumstances contradict what I believe about the character of God, there's gonna be tension. Now. You can go on to the next slide, if you will, for just a second, because I'll catch up with you in just a moment. When you get to that place where God feels distant, feels silent, when you feel more concerned than God feels, when, when you just can't understand why in the world of what's going on, here's the question, what do you do? What do you do when things don't turn out the way that you thought they were gonna turn out? What do you do when God doesn't do what you think God should be doing? What do you do? What do you do with that? How are you gonna handle it? When you're frustrated, when you're impatient, and you disagree with God, what are you gonna do? We can protest, sometimes we protest, sometimes we protest hard, sometimes we just, we protest to people, we protest to God himself, and we're so angry and so frustrated at God, we, we just raise our voice in protest. We, our spirit is in protest, our heart, our thoughts, everything about us, we're in protest against God, and that's okay, because that happens. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we just doubt God. We doubt God's goodness. We, we doubt that God has a purpose. We doubt that God has a plan. And so we become disillusioned. And we become so despondent and so discouraged that doubt begins to become the overwhelming feeling in our life. And our faith gets undermined. Now, if you've ever felt this way, or if you ever, you know, once upon a time felt that way, maybe you feel that way right now, or maybe, you know, sometime in your future you're worried you might be there. There's a story today that I wanna to wrap things up with that is, 
is a story that I love. It's the story of John the Baptizer. And, and it's a story that sometimes we know bits and pieces of it, but it's actually the story of John that, that makes me feel so good. Because if you've ever felt disappointed with Jesus, John the Baptizer is your guy. John was Jesus's cousin. Uh, they were family. Uh, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's fiery, he's eccentric, he's combative. Uh, he was the opening act of Jesus. He prepared the way for the Messiah. You know, prepare ye the way of the Lord. That was John. Uh, he's, he's a big deal. I mean, he's a real big deal. Uh, he's a man of a lot of influence and he's a man with a lot of faith. He's got a lot of influence, he's got a lot of faith. So he's preaching and he's got thousands of people in his audience. Everybody's coming out to listen to John, so thousands of people. And, and I told you this a couple of weeks ago. One day he looks up and he sees Jesus and he begins to point Jesus out to the crowd and he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John believed that Jesus was sent from God into the world to save the world. That Jesus was gonna save the world somehow from sin, sorrow, and death. He believed that. He said, this is the Lamb that comes from God. This is God's lamb that's come to take away the sins of the world. And so he baptizes Jesus. And Matthew says that as soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open, and John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And then he heard a voice, John heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. Now, I want you to think about the most transcendent experience you've ever had with God, the most spiritual experience you've ever had with God, and how it marked you and how you can remember it and how big your faith grew as a result of that experience. Imagine what this was like for John. This was unforgettable. This was a life-defining day. He saw God's Spirit somehow come upon Jesus, and then he heard the voice of God say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So in, in John's mind and in his heart, there is no doubt about who Jesus is. His faith has never been bigger. His faith has never been stronger. He, he has seen the Spirit. He has heard the voice of God. He's declared that this is the Lamb of God. And then this became John's message. He says, I've seen and I testified that this, Jesus, that this Jesus is God's chosen one. And John believed this with all of his heart. John believed this with all of his thinking. He would have staked his life on this. He would have laid down his life for this confident belief. He says that this guy, this Jesus, he's the one. He's God's Messiah. He's God's son. He's the promised one. Based on the things I've seen, based on the things I've heard, based on the things I've experienced, this is the one who is chosen of God, sent into the world to save the world. Now, he goes on a little bit further to the point where he says, I'm not even worthy to lose I'm not even worthy to loose the sandals of my cousin's feet. Now imagine that. Now I wouldn't want to touch my cousin's feet, but I'm probably not going to go so far to say that I'm not worthy to touch my cousin's sandals. But Jesus, Jesus is John's cousin. He says, you know what? He's so much better than me, so much greater than me. I'm not even worthy to loose the strings of his sandals. Matter of fact, he would say that somehow Jesus came before him, though he came after him, because John believed that Jesus had always existed. He says, this is God's chosen. That's what he believed. He was confident about it. So Jesus, he went public with his ministry. And John believed this so much. John began to look at his thousands of followers, and he said, I don't want you to follow me anymore. I want you to follow him. Now, I tried to put this into my own 
world and my own experience of what it would take for me to come in here on a Sunday and, and say to all of you, I want you all to leave and I want you to go there. Now, I can imagine saying that to a few of you, but not necessarily to all of you. I'm just kidding. Just a couple, I promise. Just a couple, but they attend at 930. Uh, so it's like, I couldn't imagine just, I don't know. I mean, I'm just too human or whatever, but John, he said, I'm not the guy. I want you to follow him now. And so thousands of people began to leave John and follow Jesus. And so his crowds began to dwindle, but John kept on preaching. And like I said, he's kind of like an Old Testament prophet. He's, he's bold, he's in your face. And, and so sometimes he preached about things that a lot of people wouldn't even talk about. And so one day he's preaching about the shenanigans going on in King Herod's palace, in King Herod's family. And so whenever you're talking about the private lives of politicians, I mean, lots of things can go wrong. And it went wrong for John the baptizer because he got thrown in prison. He started talking about what was happening in the palace and they threw him in prison. Now, this is really important. They send him to this, this dungeon, this fortress area called Machaerus, which was built by King Herod. And, and King Herod was a great architect and a great builder, you know, during his reign. Uh, great life to read about in history. Uh, but he built this fortress on top of this mountain. It was this amazing place. It was an isolated place. It was protected. Um, it was surrounded by like a monochromatic wilderness, uh, which was kind of enveloped by this just dry desert heat. I mean, it was a place really no one wanted to be at because it was just kind of a miserable place, but it was built as a fortress, as a place, you know, to save Herod's life in case he had to flee there. Well, John is thrown in prison and he's sent to Machaerus. John is in a place that he doesn't want to be because who would, who would want to be there? John's in a place, if he's probably honest, he thinks that he doesn't deserve to be there. He didn't ask for this. He didn't sign up for this. He probably expected some entire different scenario playing out. One of those scenarios probably wasn't John ending up in prison. I mean, he's the opening act. He's Jesus's cousin. He's Jesus's friend. He baptized Jesus. Surely this isn't the plan. Surely this isn't what happens to this guy. And so he's in a place that he doesn't want to be in. He's in a place that he didn't ask to be in. He didn't expect this for himself at this point. And so he's down in Machaerus in prison. And Matthew tells us this, that when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, now time out, don't read any further. What do we expect Jesus to do when he hears that his friend and his family member is in prison? What would you expect Jesus to do? What do you think Jesus should do? What would you want Jesus to do? And this is why we should always engage in what we're reading because this is where we get to the truth that sets us free. This is where we get to the stuff that moves the needle in our heart. What do we want Jesus to do in this moment? What do we think Jesus should do in this? Okay, let's just put it this way. Let's imagine it's your friend and let's imagine that your family member was put in prison in an act of injustice. But for whatever reason, you had the power, you had the influence, you had the means to set them free. What would you do? What do you think you should do? Of course, you would move, you would act, you would do something. And at the very least, we think that Jesus probably should do something about this. I mean, at a minimal, he should probably go pray with him, send him a note, give him some encouragement. But listen to what Matthew says that Jesus did. He withdrew. 
He withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake. Now, again, we read the scriptures, and unless you've been to Israel, there's kind of no image about this. Uh, a lot of us, you know, it's like we're not going to take the time to, to read a little bit more about these places. But let me give you kind of that Sunday school map that was in the back of our, you know, genuine fake leather Bible. Uh, here it is. So right here is Nazareth, and this is where Jesus has been hanging out, right here. All right, John has been arrested and he's been sent down all the way down here to Machaerus. That's where he's at. And it says that when Jesus heard that John was sent down to Machaerus to prison, Jesus is in Nazareth. Now, we would want Jesus, I think, and I think we think that maybe Jesus even should probably move in the direction of John. Jesus should probably take his entourage. He should probably take his disciples. Let's find out how John is. Let's find out what's going on. Let's find out if there's anything we can do. Let's find out how we can help. And we would think that maybe Jesus would move in that direction, but this is what Matthew says, that he actually moved north and he goes to Capernaum. He goes to Capernaum. He doesn't move closer to John. He moves further away from John. And that's exactly how it feels for us sometimes when all hell breaks loose and the bottom falls out. We think that Jesus should, that, that we want him to take a step in our direction, that we want him to be vocal, we want him to be present, we want, we want to know that he's there. But sometimes it feels like he's moving in the other direction. Sometimes it feels like he's gone completely silent, and that's how it felt for John. Now, meanwhile down in Machaerus, this is what Machaerus looks like. It's kind of built upon this, this mountain that Herod kind of shaved the top off and then he built this big fortress. And again, it was just like, it was a, it was a perfect place to go in, in a time where you had an army bearing down on you. But this is the view from Machaerus. Uh, you can just see, it's just, it's just kind of it's kind of blood, it's a, it's a desert, it's a wilderness. Nobody wanted to be there. And imagine being in a dungeon there. It's bad enough to be in the desert, it's bad enough to be in the wilderness, but to be in the desert wilderness in a dungeon. I mean, we can only imagine how horrible the conditions were. That's where John is. That's what John sees. Let me show you where Jesus was. He's at the beach. <laughs> Jesus has gone on vacation. Jesus is at the side of the sea in a cabana, drinking a banana drink, hanging out with his fellas. He, he's up there, it's like, he, he's up there in beautiful country. He's up there, you know, it's tropical, it's gorgeous, it's lush, and John's down in prison. And so as John's in prison and Jesus is up there kind of doing his thing, he's going around and he's preaching, he's teaching, he's doing all these miracles and Jesus is seemingly not paying any attention at all to what's going on in John's life. But let's remember, you know, the old saying says, when, you, when you're in prison, I pray, but when I'm in prison, I panic. When your family comes apart, I pray, but when my family comes apart, I, I panic, I, I fall apart. When, when you get a bad diagnosis, I pray, but when I get a bad diagnosis, sometimes it can shatter my faith because sometimes we process other people's pain and other people's situation much different than we process our own. So John, John's praying. John's a man of faith. Others are praying for John. And Jesus seemingly does nothing. A year and a half goes by, a year and a half. It's silent, there, there's no activity going on. 547 days. Approximately, John's in prison. He hears zilch from Jesus. And, and John's wondering what in the world's going on. 
This is 547 days of disappointment. This is 547 days of, of disillusionment. This is 547 days of where in the world is he? Why in the world? What is going on here? This is not the way this is supposed to be. 547 days of wrestling with your circumstances and trying to make sense of it in light of the character of God. 547 wakes, 547 times of laying yourself down and, and just trying to wonder how much longer you can deal with this and how much longer you can handle this. So John's in prison for about a year and a half and it says when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, Jesus, he sent his disciples because he's only left with a couple at this point. And remember, you know, how difficult it would have been. He knows that Jesus is up north. He knows where Jesus is. He has sent thousands of people to follow after Jesus and nobody seems to care. And John's wondering, were any of those people really my friend ever? I mean, I thought they were behind me. I thought they were with me. I told them to go follow Jesus, but I don't even think they care anymore. Nobody's even worried about my situation. Nobody's even concerned about this. And so John, he gets to a certain point of darkness and discouragement that doubt takes over. And he says, I need you to go ask Jesus if he's really the one or should we look for another? This is the guy that introduced Jesus by saying, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the guy who said, hey, I saw his spirit fall upon him. I, I, I heard the voice of God from heaven say, this is my beloved son. This is the guy that said, I'm not worthy to loose this guy's sandals. And now, John is saying, are you the one? Was I wrong about you? Did I get this all wrong? Did I believe a lie? Did I just, did I concoct this in my imagination? Somewhere in the silence, and somewhere in the darkness of his season, doubt began to take over. He got so disappointed with Jesus, he began to question everything that he thought he knew and believed about Jesus. Because that's how, that's how disappointment works. When we get disappointed in God, we get disappointed with Jesus, there's only a matter of time before doubt just, it just begins to erupt out of that disappointment. And I think that John, more than just saying, are you the one or should we look for another? I think he's really asking, where are you? I'm your friend. I, I mean, do you know, I stepped out on a limb for you. I took a real risk for you. I said, you are the guy. I sent people after you. Where are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing anything? Why is it anybody doing anything? Did I ever matter to you? Did anything that I do, did it matter? Did it count? Because it doesn't feel like it did. It doesn't look like it did. Circumstances have a way of turning a conviction into a question. What you thought you knew, what you thought you were confident about, you get into enough hell, you get into a bad enough situation, you get into a bad enough struggle, you begin to question all of those things that once upon a time were a conviction. The loneliness, the isolation, that you feel like God's ignoring, you feel like God has gone AWOL, you feel like you just, you have no idea if God even cares about what you feel like you're in the middle of and all of a sudden you're questioning everything. To which I would say to you and I would say to me and I think what Jesus is gonna teach John is don't question in the dark what you first believed in the light. Faith comes to life in the light that's where we place our faith. That's where we find our faith. We find a reason to believe. We find evidence to believe. We, 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 we are encouraged to believe in the light. And then one day when the lights go out and darkness falls in your life, my life, it's really easy to begin to question 
in the darkness, everything that we first believed in the light. That's how it works. And that's where John is. Are you the one or should we look for another? So they go to Jesus and they said, Jesus, John sent us here. And he said, hey, we're just going to tell you what he said. He wants to know, are you the one or was he wrong? And Jesus replied and said, I want you to go back and report to John what you hear and see. I want you to tell him that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, I want you to go tell John what I'm doing for everybody else, but not for him. And it's like, are you sure you want to do that, Jesus? Are, are you, do, you want to, do you really want us to go tell John that you're up here doing miracles for other people when he needs a miracle? Do you, do you really want us to go tell John that you're up here doing what you're doing? Jesus, you know John. He was a Nazarite. He said no to dinner parties and he said no to a lifestyle of wine and feasting. That's just not what he did. But he kind of knows you're up here kind of hitting the, the wedding circuit and you're going to one dinner party after another and he heard about one where they ran out of wine and you decided to serve some more. You turned some water into wine and seems like you're living high and you're living big and you're up here and you got all these people and it's kind of like you forgot about him. He, he's paid a price and it's like you're just up here. Now, I may be reading into it, but I think if I were John, I, that's how I would feel. That's probably how I would think. Maybe not you, but I think I would. And then Jesus says something that I've not been able to get out of my head for like two weeks. And it's so honest, it's refreshing. And it's so problematic, but yet encouraging. As those two guys begin to walk away, Jesus turns to everybody else and he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is the person, happy is the person, fortunate is the person who, listen, who doesn't lose faith in me because of me. Wow. Jesus looks at the crowd as these guys walk away and John's doubting. And he says, I want you to know, happy is the person, blessed is the person who doesn't lose faith in me because of me, who doesn't lose footing who doesn't wander away, who doesn't deconstruct, who doesn't trip over me. Blessed is the one who doesn't doubt because of me, who isn't offended because of me. Offended of what I do or what I don't do or how I do it or when I choose to do it. It's a stumbling block and Jesus was so honest. He said, you know what? Sometimes I'm gonna feel like a stumbling block along your path in life. And you're gonna be at times at risk of tripping over me. But happy is the person who doesn't trip because of me, by what I do or what I don't do. That's the happy person, that's the fortunate person. Jesus would say at times, it's almost like I'm an obstacle when it comes to you following me. But don't trip over me. When I answer a prayer over here, but I don't answer yours, don't trip over me. When it seems like I'm doing for other people what I'm not doing for you, don't trip over me. Don't stumble over me. Don't get offended because of me. Don't get so disappointed and don't get so doubting that you walk away from me. 
And, and, if, and if I were one of those disciples, and maybe they did, it's like they would look up at Jesus and say, Jesus, so let us get this right. You know what's been going on with John? And Jesus could say, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I do know what's been going on with John. You, you know that he's, he's barely holding on to his faith? Yeah, I know that. Do you know all the good that he's done, Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I know it all. Do you know all the good that he could do if he were out of prison? Yeah, I, I know, I know. So Jesus, you could rescue him if you wanted to. I could. You, you could change his circumstances if you wanted to. I could. So, blessed is the person who doesn't stumble on account of me by what I choose to do or what I choose not to do. How I handle this situation or how I choose not to handle this situation. I may not do what you want me to do. I may not do it how you want me to do it or when you want me to do it, but I want you to hear me. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble because of me. And Jesus invited those people and Jesus is inviting John and Jesus is inviting us to walk by faith and not by explanations. To walk by faith and not by explanations. That we decide we're gonna trust God even when God's silent. Even when it feels like God doesn't care. We're, we're gonna walk by faith when we're gonna trust God. We're gonna trust God even when he's doing for other people and he's not doing for us. When he answers your prayers but he doesn't answer mine. I may not know why, I may not like it, it may not be what I would do, what I would want him to do or think he should do, but I don't have to have an explanation to walk by faith. So trust God. Walk by faith, not by explanations. You say, was Jesus upset with John about something? Was Jesus trying to teach John a lesson? No. So how do you know? Because of what he said next. He says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John's circumstances had nothing to do with how Jesus felt about him. Jesus cherished John the Baptist. He loved John the Baptist and he thought no one is better than this man. So he's not punishing him. He's not trying to make an example of him. It wasn't about how much faith or how little faith John had or how good he was or how not good he was. This is just about that life happens. And in a world of free choice, Terrible things can take place. Tragedies can take place. Injustices can take place. So don't confuse life with God. And then Jesus says, let me say something for you because when you get in your own prison, in your own dark place, in your own place of doubting, don't miss this part. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom is greater than John. He says, you may feel like the worst, you may feel like the least, he said, but I want you to know, as great as John is, he's the greatest born of a woman. You are greater than him because that's how it is in the kingdom of God. You may get disappointed in me, Jesus would say, but I'll never be disappointed in you because that's how it is in the kingdom. This new covenant that I've come to start. So, as we wrap it up, you don't have to understand in order to trust. I don't have to understand in order to trust. I don't have to understand why my expectations of Jesus fell short. I don't have to understand why he chose not to answer my prayers or why he chose not to involve himself the way that I thought he should have involved himself. 
When I'm in unwanted circumstances, I don't have to understand them in order to trust. You don't have to understand in order to trust that God's with me and that God's for me. You don't have to understand in order to trust that. There may be a lot of unanswered questions. There may be a lot of things that he doesn't offer clarity for, but you don't have to understand in order to trust. You can trust God's heart. You can trust that God loves you and wants the best for you. That in the middle of whatever you're going through, in the middle of whatever it is, there is a purpose and there is a promise. There's a purpose to this and there's a promise in it. And the purpose is that God won't waste whatever you're in. God's not gonna waste this season of suffering, this season of difficulty, this season of struggle. God's not gonna waste it. There's a purpose in it. And one day he'll reveal the full tapestry of his goodness and his purpose and his plan in your life. But until then, you don't have to understand it to believe that there's a purpose in it. And in the meanwhile, you can hold on to the promise that every bad thing, he's gonna redeem it for good. And every bit of the ashes are gonna be turned to beauty. And all the dark places are gonna have light. And all the dead things are gonna to come to life. You don't have to understand in order to trust. There's a purpose and there's a promise. And I came here today to tell all of us that Jesus, he may disappoint you, but he will never fail you. In the end, he will fulfill every purpose. He will redeem every choice. He will redeem all the pain, all the struggle, all the wrong turns. In the end, his purposes will prove themselves perfect. And in the end, his promises will be kept, every last one of them. He may disappoint us. He may have disappointed John. But I think if John could speak today, I think John would tell us, he never failed me once. And when God fulfills all of his purposes and fulfills all of his promises, we'll know that even in our disappointment, he never failed us once. Father, I pray that you would let this word find a place to land I pray the seed would, would fall on good ground and that it would be watered and that it would bring forth fruit. I pray that this is the kind of faith that is messy and it's, it's gritty, but it's life. It's what we see in the scripture. And Jesus says, blessed is the person who doesn't stumble because of me. So when we get to that place of disappointment, that place of doubting, May we not trip in the moment of our disappointment. May we not fall away in the season of our doubt. God, sometimes it's easier to believe in you than it is to believe that you believe in us. But we know that you do. And you're with us. And you're for us. And we receive that truth today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,